0: reading is from Joshua 24, 1-28. This is very near the end of this book, and thankfully there's not too much I can mess up on, but I will try. Um, Joshua 24, 1-28. It's going to be found on page 168 on your pew Bibles. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but to Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there. But I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, and also two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow, bow, but I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from the vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers out of Egypt, from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See he said to all the people this stone will be a witness against us it has heard all the words of the lord it has heard the, all the words the lord has said to us and it will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your god then joshua sent the people away each to his own inheritance may god bless the reading of his word
1: morning everyone Good to see all of you this morning um, <clears throat> in a book i was um, reading recently the author uh, shares the story that um, he had with his eight-year-old daughter um, it was during their nightly prayer time and when the father came in to, uh, to to be with the daughter for their prayer time the daughter had a surprise for him as she had been doing some memory work and wanted to recite it for the father um, dad do you want me to hear hear me say the ten commandments I was like oh you memorized them and the proud grin came over her face well let's hear them um, the father leaned back and listened as her daughter as his daughter morgan worked her way through all 10 you know you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make an idol for yourself and so on um the daughter recited all 10 uh, without a hitch and then the father's teachable moment instant kicked in and he's like morgan that was great now let me ask you have you ever broken any of the Ten Commandments, and the daughter smiled again. But this time, it wasn't so much of a shy smile as it was you know, kind of the smile when you know you're guilty, but you don't really want to indict yourself. And so the father um, decided to help her. She's like, he was like, well, well, let's see. Have you ever lied to anyone? And the daughter nodded slowly. Have you ever wanted something so much that you know you you just saw what they had and you really, really wanted it? And the daughter nodded again discovering she was guilty of coveting and the father's like well i know you haven't murdered anyone but have you ever really really hated anyone so much so that that you were just yeah you just felt like you just didn't want this person around you know have you ever he continued i don't know not honored your father and mother which they both knew the answer And then the daughter um, let out the sigh, indicating it was time for her dad to stop preaching. But then her eyes became bright, and she's like, Hey, Dad, I thought of one commandment I've never broken. She's like, I've never made an idol. And then the father, now his instincts really kicked in, and he really wanted to respond to that. He wanted to tell the daughter that that particular commandment is the one that we break most often. He wanted to tell her that Martin Luther said, that you can't violate the other nine commandments without breaking this one first. But he knew better. He knew that this was best to save for another day. So they just kind of prayed and they thanked God that, um, you know, that Jesus saved them and that she was able to recite the Ten Commandments. Uh, But as they finished their prayer time and he left the room and he started walking down the stairs, he wrote that he, 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 he thought to himself, you know, what if other people kind of had the same conception of this particular commandment of idolatry as the daughter did? You know, what if, you know, they feel like they haven't broken it because we've never kneeled before, Id- before idols or carved images? Um, and the author writes, well, what if it's not though about statues? What if, it's, what if our gods nowadays take identities that are so ordinary that we don't recognize them as gods at all? What if we do our kneeling and bowing with our imaginations, our checkbooks, our search engines, our calendars? And as we get into our passage this morning, this is what Joshua, we're going to see, addresses. And as um, Emily said, we finally reached the last chapter of Joshua. And for those of you who've been with us for this whole series, I don't know if you're happy because our series on Joshua is near-ending and you're ready to move on to something else or you're disappointed because we're coming to the end of Joshua. But we've reached the final chapter, uh, whatever your feeling may be. Now, last week, Jeff preached on chapter 23. And in that chapter, as well as this chapter, Joshua is gathering the people to convey some very important information to them. Uh, Joshua senses that his time on earth is going to be coming to an end soon. And and as we saw last week in verse 3 of chapter 23, Joshua tells the Israelites, I am old and well advanced in years. So, I mean, he knows he's not going to be leading the people much longer. And to make things even worse, his absence is actually going to create this leadership void. Whereas if you remember when Moses was leading the people, When his time came to an end, Joshua came about and he was appointed to be the one to take over the reins of leadership after Moses. But now with Joshua leaving, there's actually no human that is set to take his place. So Joshua realizes these two things. He realizes first that his time is coming to an end and he realizes that there's going to be this leadership vacuum because there's nobody else to take his place. And so because of this, he feels this urgency to speak to the Israelites so that, you know, he wants to make sure that they're on right footing with God and will stay that way even when the Lord takes them home. And so in this final recorded speech of Joshua, we're going to see, and you can see in your outline, that he gives his people a reminder, a resolution, and a recognition. A reminder, a resolution, and a recognition. And so we'll first start off with the reminder. Joshua first reminds the Israelites of God's faithfulness to them. Uh, Beginning with verse two and going all the way to verse thirteen, you can see this. Joshua is giving a brief recount of his history with them, going all the way back from the time even before Abraham, whom God met as a single individual in Mesopotamia, up to this current place and time that they're at, where they're now, you know, it's just a huge gathering, multitudes of people who have been allotted and are now settling into the promised land. And the thing to note in all these verses is how God takes the initiative and under no no obligation whatsoever, He did all these things for the Israelite people. And if you haven't done so already, you can open your Bibles to Joshua 24 and you can follow along with me and we can go through this very quickly. You can see, beginning verse 2, it says, Long ago your forefathers, including Terah the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the rivers and worshipped other gods, but, verse 3, I, who is the Lord, took your father Abraham from beyond the river, led him throughout Canaan, and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the whole country of Seir to Esau. Verse 5, I sent Moses and Aaron and afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. Verse 7, the Lord put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them. And covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Verse 8, I brought you to the land of the Amorites. And later on, I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you. Verse 9, Balak son of Zippur, king of Moab, sent for Balaam to put a curse on you. But verse 10, I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you and I delivered you out of his hand. Verse 10, 11, then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The city of the sins of Jericho fought against you as did the Amorites, Perizzites, and so on. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet, which is a term, if you're wondering what that means, it's probably a term symbolizing the wrath or terror of God. I sent this hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. So, yeah, just in all these verses, it's so easy to see. Our God has been so good to the Israelites and so faithful to the promises that he made to them. You know, as a fitting summation, he tells them at the end of verse 12 and in verse 13, You did not do it with your own sword and bow. I gave you a land which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from the vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. I mean, all of the things that Joshua just said was was history that was very familiar to the crowd. And once again, it just epitomizes God's awesome and overwhelming, miraculous power. I mean, throughout all these generations, God has been steadfastly gracious and generous to Israel throughout thick and thin. Even when Israel was not faithful to them, God was true to his people. So no one listening that day could ever say you know that God was not true to his promises and God was not true to his people when God declared earlier that I will be your God and you will be my people no one could argue that at least from God's perspective he has always been there for them he has done all these great things for them and once again it was under no obligation whatsoever it was out of just his graciousness for his people And this is how Joshua starts out. And before we move on from this point, you know, one thing that we could consider is whether we could write similar words. You know, as we reflect on events in our own lives, what past events could we cite as examples of God's faithfulness to us? You know, maybe some of us could think about events in school where God proved himself faithful. Maybe some of us would detail how God got us that first job out of college that we would consider truly miraculous you know maybe for those who are married some of your friends say the fact that you found someone to marry you was truly a miracle I don't know maybe others you know would think about different people God has placed into our lives as an example of God's goodness to us yeah. you know there's probably many incidents if we thought about it that we could only that we would only say you know it was truly an act of God and he worked in our life, in my life and he was faithful And so think about, you know, if you were rewriting verses 2 to 13 and writing it as a, you know, history of your own life and God's testament and a testament of God's faithfulness to your own life, what things would you write? What could you say about this? And then after Joshua reminding the people of God's faithfulness to them, Joshua makes a natural transition to call the people to make a resolution. You know, his reasoning is like, you know, these, these are all the things that God has done for you. He's been so good to you. He's been so faithful to you. Now what are you going to do for Him? And then to help them, help the people along, he tells them in verses 14 to 15, you know, fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Stow away the gods, the other gods your forefathers worship. Resolve to serve God only. And then it's the kind of, Plant a stake in the ground. Joshua makes this declaration, which is probably the most, you know, uh, quoted passage or quoted phrase in the whole book of Joshua. You know, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And understand, you know, in the audience's eyes, for Joshua to say this, it's really, you know, not a revelation. You know, Joshua has this sterling track record of serving God. He has a sterling record of being devoted to God, so of course he's going to serve the Lord. And once again, the people also recognize that Joshua's time on earth is going to end soon. So the question is not really whether Joshua is going to serve the Lord. The greater question is whether they will join him in serving God and remain faithful to the Lord even after Joshua's death. And so the people respond, far be it from us. In, in modern terms, they would say, like, no way, no way would we serve any other gods and not the true God. He's been faithful to us. He's brought us out of Egypt. He's brought our parents out of Egypt. He protected us. He provided this great land to us. Of course we're going to serve him. Why would we serve anyone else? And although, you know, this is the answer that Joshua wants to hear, this too could Just be considered the expected answer after all that's been said and done. You know, remember from the last chapters that, you know, when we started the second half of Joshua, how the Israelites just went through this long process of receiving their portions of the promised land. And then in chapter 23 and now in our chapter, Joshua, you know, just finished giving these great speeches about how God was good to them and how faithful he was. And so, you know, it was just kind of like a retreat experience for them. You know, it's like for many of us, we go away and retreat. We sing all these songs about God and get pumped up. We hear great messages about God. And we come back thinking, you know, yeah, God's awesome. You know, God's great. You know, of course I'm going to follow God. You know, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You know, we can make plaques on this and put up in our houses. That'll be cool. You know, and that's what these people were thinking, you know. So after, you know, the people, you know, just say, we're going to follow God. It's interesting that Joshua doesn't go, that's good. That's just what I wanted to hear. You know, go, go for it. Go do it. He doesn't do that. He gives them actually a stern warning. And so in this last section of the speech, Joshua, after giving the people of, you know, calling the people to make a resolution to serve God only, he wants to give the people a recognition related to the serious nature of following God. In a somewhat shocking statement, he tells the people in verse 19, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. And you read that and you're like, what? I mean, after remaining the people of what God has just done for them, after making a passionate plea for them to serve God exclusively and after hearing that the people will say that they will do so, why does he now tell them that they can't? I mean, why would he state furthermore that God would not forgive their rebellion and their sins? I mean, you're like, what's going on here? And and as I was reading this, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. You know, these are really harsh words we need to understand, well, first of all, that Joshua does not mean this in an absolute sense. From the next verse, in verse 20, he starts off, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. And so if verse 19 was meant as an absolute, there wouldn't be an if in verse 20. You know, it would just say, you will forsake God and you will serve foreign gods. And so to better understand what is meant by this sentence by verse 19, if he doesn't mean it in an absolute sense, we have to understand more of the background and the culture back back then. The thing one of the things we need to understand is that people in those times grew up in a culture that was highly polytheistic. And what this term means is that they basically they just recognized and they worshiped many gods. And our chapter makes reference to this several times. You know, verse 2, your forefathers worshipped other gods. Verse 15, the gods your forefathers served. And later talks about the gods of the Amorites. Verse 23, throw away the foreign gods that are among you. The reason people believed in so many gods was because different gods had different tasks tasks in different roles. You know, one god could have been in charge of the sea, another in charge of the land, one god was in charge of the sun, another in charge of the rain. Uh, none of, you know, none of the gods, you know, could do everything. And so, therefore, none of these gods were all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present. The gods were viewed as, as having the same qualities, well, some of the same qualities as humans, not only their good qualities, but also the bad qualities. But of course, because they were gods with a little g, they had less limitations. And as such, having these human characteristics and qualities, these gods also had needs. So by caring for them, such as giving them food to eat, or music to soothe them, they could be appeased to bring about fortune and success. And so with this in mind, we can understand that the Israelites could easily have gotten a false understanding of what it really meant to serve God. If they looked at if they followed the example of the other cultures around them, they could just say, yeah, we'll serve God. You know, we can do things to appease them, we can give him food, you know, we can make them happy so that he'll protect us and we'll protect him. But what Joshua is doing in verse 19 is admonishing the people and Calling them to recognize that serving this God, serving, you know, Jehovah God, the Lord, you know, He is not like serving the foreign gods. And to show why, He highlights two of God's unique characteristics. You know, He first states in verse 19 that God is holy, meaning that He is set apart, and there is no other God, no one, or nothing else like Him. You know, Hannah states in 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. And our sin creates a problem because it conflicts with His holiness. So we can only come to terms, we can only come to God on His terms, not on ours. The people in the Old Testament learned this many times, such as in Exodus 19 when God told Moses to not let the people come up to the mountain when he was appearing before them and they couldn't even touch the foot of the mountain or they would die. Or In 1 Samuel 6 when 70 of the Israelites actually did die, all because they just peeked into the Ark of the Covenant. And after this incident happened, the people cried out, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And of course the answer is, no one can do it because he is holy. And then Joshua, in verse 19, not only reminds the people that God is holy, but he also says that he is jealous. He will not share his demand for worship and loyalty with any other. He fiercely upholds this honor and will lash out against those who oppose him. So Joshua is telling them, you know, if you think you can serve this God as well as other gods, you're mistaken. You know. So Joshua is urging the people in verse 19 to 20 to take to, to not take this commitment to follow God lightly, He isn't like the other gods with a little G that they have known. You can't nonchalantly follow Him. You can't just think you can do such and such to appease Him, and everything will be okay. You know, as as C.S. Lewis wrote, you know about Aslan and the land, the witch, and the wardrobe. You know, God is good. He's the King, I tell you, but He isn't safe. He's not someone that we can just take lightly. And so Joshua's warning to the Israelites causes us to consider our own commitment to following and serving God. You know, do we recognize the serious nature of it? How does our understanding of God's holiness and jealousy factor into our relationship with God? You know, though we may not, as the author in the book at the beginning said, bow down to statues of bowed on the statues or kneel kneel, to, that kneel down to carved images. We can still have many gods or idols today. You know, if we yield excessive authority for something to direct our lives, they may be a god. If something plays a more significant role in our lives than god, that might be a good sign that this thing has become a god in our life. And I'm sure if we wanted to, if we took the time, you know, we could sit around and we could just call out dozens of things that people could replace The true God for to be God. Um, But for now, just let me highlight three very quickly. I think the first one that's most common is a God of materialism. And this God says that happiness and satisfaction comes through financial success, possession of material goods, and pleasure. Chris Hedges wrote in his book, Losing Moses on the Freeway, he says this. He says, We have household gods no longer made of clay. But all promising to fulfill us. Our computer, our TV, our job, our wealth, our social status, along with brands we wear and cars we drive, promise us contentment and inform our identity. These household gods seem to offer well-being, health, and success, but all these gods create cults. And this is not to say that there's, there's anything wrong with owning these things. I mean, I have a computer, I have a TV, I have a good car. The problem is, though, when we believe that these things can satisfy our desires in a way that only God can, or when we use these things to give us, quote-unquote, a happiness fix, which reduces our dependence on God. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing things like going out to eat with friends and celebrating. I mean, Scripture is full of people feasting and celebrating but if we get to a point where we think something like, Oh I can just get a good go out to a good restaurant and have a good meal to satisfy me, I don't need God for this, then God becomes less than God because we've partially replaced them with something else. Or if we like make sure we rush home from work one night because we gotta watch this T V show, do we have the same enthusiasm to rush home other nights to spend time with God? If not, maybe this show is becoming a god to us. You know, how do we know when we cross the line? In another book, The Agony of Influence, the author William Rawls writes this. He says, the Bible does not condemn the desire for worldly goods, but it does condemn perversions of that desire. Specifically, the Bible condemns desires that eclipses our love for God, our love for those around us, and our love for the weak and poor. There are therefore limits on the pursuit of wealth. To, trans- to transgress those limits is to be guilty of greed, covetousness and oppression. And then related to the god of materialism is a second god which is the god of convenience. Our society places a high value on convenience and I, I for one know that I really buy into this god. In fact, when I first moved to Boston, I, so some of you know I have like a long list of things I don't like about Boston, and one of them is that I call Boston a city of inconvenience. Before, when we were living in Houston, Houston to me was a much more convenient place to live. There was an abundance of stores and eating places nearby, many stores opened late, most supermarkets were 24 hours, a variety of eating places we could go to also stayed late, parking was rarely a problem. But here in Boston, stores are not always nearby, many close early. The selection of fast food restaurants are quite limited and they close early. Parking is often a problem, you know. We value the God of convenience because we expect its traits to be omnipresent and omniavailable. You know, for myself, I don't particularly like Bank of America, but I gotta admit, I have an account at Bank of America because their ATMs are everywhere. And no one should have to travel too far to get to an ATM. Uh, Many of you know, about a week ago, my family was out of town, and I was thinking, well, I don't need to bring much money because I can just go to a Bank of America ATM. I mean, they're everywhere, right? I found out that one of the states we went to, they don't have Bank of America. (laughs) There's no ATMs there. And I was disappointed because the God of Bank of America, this God of Convenience, let me down. They were not omnipresent. They were not omniavailable. And I realized, you know, we like worshipping this God of Convenience so much because it makes us feel important and it makes us feel special. Their sanctuaries are always open and they're always here to serve us whenever we need them. And, you know, as I thought more about this God of Materialism and this God of Convenience, I realized that actually related to a bigger issue which for me is the god of self the belief that i am and should be the center of my world the god of material says you need this whereas the god of convenience and the god of self says you deserve this you know we want to be in total control of our lives what we will do when we will do it who will, who we will associate with what we will own you know etc but then as I thought about it, if I want to control these things, then does God really have control? And you know, as I studied more into Joshua 24 and heard Joshua's warning to the Israelites about serving other gods, it didn't take long for me to realize that oftentimes, you know, I'm a polytheist. I would never reject God outright, at least I hope I never would. But I can worship other gods, even though I claim Worship him only. And I would venture to guess that many of you would have to make the same confession. And so Joshua comes alongside us and challenge, excuse me, challenges us to come to a greater recognition of the serious nature of serving God and the exclusivity that our God requires and deserves. For once again, Joshua reminds us in verse 19 he is a holy and a jealous God. And there is none like him. So how do we move from polytheism, following other gods, to monotheism, following the true God only? Actually, I'm going to try to get more into this next week. But for now, let me share with you what one commentator wrote. J.H. Michaelis noted that Israel cannot serve the Lord by their own resolution only. And without the assistance of divine grace. Without solid and serious conversion from all idols. And without true repentance and faith. And you know what was true back then is still true today. We need the assistance of divine grace combined with our human effort to help rid ourselves of idols and come to God in true repentance and faith. Paul writes in Philippians 2, Verses 12 to 13. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to, to fulfill his good purpose. So we see you know, that there's this human element and there's this God element. We have our part to do, which is working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because God is a holy and jealous God. But God also promises to give us grace to work in us, to do what we cannot do on our own, to fulfill his good purposes. So may we truly understand what it means to serve God, to serve God exclusively and to serve God faithfully. May we try with all our efforts to be devoted to him and beseech God to give us divine grace to help us do what we cannot do on our own. Let us understand what it means to serve God only. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you just for these words of Joshua and the words of this chapter. Uh, Lord, it's a very challenging passage to hear Uh, but as Joshua warned the people about the dangers of serving foreign gods back then, uh, so it is even true today Lord, we don't necessarily bow down to gads of made of gold or, or carved images. But Lord, there's so many other things we can bow down to, be it materialism or convenience or, you know, just dozens of other things we could name. Father, help us to realize in a greater sense who you are, how holy you are, how jealous you are. And may we- May we um, beseech your grace to help us so that we can follow you only and serve you exclusively. Lord, continue to teach us on these things um, through your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.